Welcome to part two. Um, this is a podcast that will be um, a part of a workshop series that I'm teaching. It's a micro series that is unpacking. It's called the Positionality Workshop Series. The first weekend's about positionality. And I wanted to make this podcast because I know I'll be doing a lot of workshops that will be utilizing the powerful tool of positionality. And positionality is one of the, I think, one of the most precious um, practices that I use in dismantling racism and working with my one-on-one clients in my micro workshops and working with businesses. There's so many ways to utilize a positionality profile. And some people get confused and say, oh, it's a personality. And in some ways, maybe it does speak to personality, but it's not a personality personality. Um, profile. This is a positionality. And I just want to frame up what is positionality. And positionality is a deep observation of who you are. And not just who you are, but who you believe yourself to be. And then also what the world believes you to be. Positionality in holistic resistance, we use questions to help us understand and help you understand your positionality. And there's many things that can contribute to the positionality. And only on this podcast, we're just going to begin to touch it. But as we break down positionality, we're going to really examine the process that we take with clients, with anyone that we want to do this work with. And what I understand is that sometimes people say, I have some challenges around race. I, I maybe said something and did something online or my business or even in a personal relationship. And they say, how could I fix it? And before I even begin to help support their thinking, notice where their blind spots are, I try and do a short or long observation or positionality profile development with them. And so this is what we're going to do here on this podcast. But I want to just, before I go into positionality and and how we utilize it and the questions that we utilize is I want to talk briefly about the history um, of how I started using questions. And the reason that's relevant is because at the time I didn't have the language or the strategy or the wisdom at the time to really articulate what was happening. But it was a, a relationship, a romantic relationship that helped me do some deep evaluation of who am I. And that who am I also reflected on who is my person I'm dating or the people that are in my life. And it started, I was probably about 21, um, but it really kind of came to came to fruition when I was maybe 23 is when I ended my first relationship. And in that ending that relationship, I realized what kind of shook me up at the time, but I'm so glad it shook me up is that I didn't know who the person was I was dating. I had dated them for three years. I talked to them every day on the phone. And we talked about nothing, really. At the end of the day, nothing that we shared was actually helpful in me having any kind of clarity about who they were. And so for me, it was a shock when I ended that relationship. I took 12 months off. I said, I'm not going to date anybody for a year. I'm just going to examine myself. I remember sitting down maybe a week or so after I broke up with my uh, first relationship. Excuse me. And I wrote in my journal, crossed the line, inappropriate questions. 
And I had no idea that those questions were going to have a massive impact on my reality, my world. And I began to write, I wrote for about six months. No, not six months. Six months had impact by, I wrote for about three months. I had 400 questions written. And in hindsight, most of them weren't inappropriate across the line. But at the time, they felt edgy. They felt inappropriate. But they're just all the things that came out. And those 400 questions, I wrote mostly for myself. But what happened was, I began to date again. So I, at the time, OkCupid okay, just came out in kind of a major way, maybe going for a couple of years, but I felt I got wind of it and friends were talking about it. Online dating as a whole kind of had an up-click. And I met some amazing people. But one of the people I met, I got on the phone with them and they were cool, but we weren't talking about anything on the phone. We were kind of going into this trope of talk about nothing and act like it's something. And I had that journal nearby, I just cracked it open, so I asked 10 of these questions, I asked 10 of those questions, and then I got through like maybe an eight or so. And that was one of the most insightful conversations I ever had on the phone with anyone. And I was like, snap. I ended up asking that person um, all 400 questions, not that night, but over the series of six months. And we ended up dating for about a year and a half, and we're still friends today. Here we are 10 years plus later. And I think it speaks to the power of those questions. And those questions to me were still very much in development and have done a lot of developing since then. But I share that history because one thing that shocked me in that first relationship after I successfully utilized those questions is I remember asking myself, who else do I know in my life? I looked around and realized I didn't know my brothers. I didn't know my mother. I didn't know anyone that I considered my close core friends didn't know them. I mean, I kind of knew them a little bit, but there's a lot of questions I could have asked to help clarify their experience. One of my favorite questions I used to ask a lot is, what is the source of your joy and how do you protect it? Believe it or not, for most people I care about and love, I couldn't really tell them what the source of their joy was. I had no idea how they would protect it. But that question has been the center of so many powerful conversations with people that I love and care about. And then the skillfulness and the attention to listen didn't come for another five or six years. I, I listened okay, but my ability to listen has definitely improved. And I've used several mediums to practice that, but mostly it's just engaging and practicing mindful listening and ways to hold people's story. And that's hard in America particularly because in America, we don't really pride ourselves in listening. That being said, I'm gonna bring us back to our tool now because you know 15 years later and many other evolutions that maybe someday I'll talk about I learned that questions were big and not just questions but how to know when to ask them tone of voice my own positionality and how that could impact how people respond to me so in the landscape of positionality profile. How do you build it? How do you use it? Why well, I recommend first you use it on yourself. This is a personal journey. I, I, I can't emphasize enough that if you get these questions that you sit with them, preferably a year or two. Maybe you can in that year or two do it within community, but like one or two people within that year. I don't recommend you just go out and like post them on Facebook and go like, look at all these inappropriate or profile personality questions. This is really a, a meditation. Why I say use and most effectively is in a meditation, almost like a meditation, um, but a personal practice. Wake up in the morning, take a question with you throughout the day. So I'm gonna read through about maybe half of them just to get a sense of how we utilize a positionality profile and then give you all some, 
some tools to work with. And if you're in the workshop, you have the complete list. And if you're not in the workshop, this would be a great part to start. So the first thing I start with in my typical personality question, and I, I oftentimes mix these up, but this is the order that I have them right now, I'll say. Um, and I encourage you to start with what speaks to you first. Don't necessarily start with where I start. The first question is, what did deep relationships look like in your intimate family or family of origins? Um, so this is your mom, dad, sibling relationship. And building out personality profile, we're tracking your origin story and where you uh, are born or how you were born and how your relationships were modeled before when you were like four, five, six, seven and developing. How did close relationships look like? And if you have trauma or have some disruption or just don't have a lot of models, which can manifest as trauma of not seeing people be close, not knowing how to be close for a variety of reasons. That is so good to know if you're trying to dismantle racism, if you're trying to build community and you grew up for many influential years of your life not seeing deep relationships, or maybe you thought they were deep like I did and realized that you didn't know anyone, that no one actually asked real questions in your family. No one had conversations that invited deep evaluations of your own identity. So if that hasn't happened, that's good to know. And oftentimes that's what I look for in that first question of what did deep relationships look like in your immediate family or family of origin. That can get complicated, but it's the place where we start. Number two, this question is around spirituality. How does your spiritual practice impact your relationships? Very simple question, but we're looking for who someone is and to build their personality profile. It's really good that we begin to understand how their spiritual practice, whatever they define that as, maybe they don't even have a spiritual practice they define, but Usually someone has some version of spirituality that they might use to center themselves, ground themselves. And how does it impact their relationships? That's huge to me. I feel like that's one of the things that I really, really value about um, holistic resistance is, again, we, we try and look at the whole person, the whole experience. And spirituality is a critical part of that. Um, I will also mention here that these questions all have follow-up questions. We call them baby questions in holistic resistance that are born out of the answer of yourself or whoever you're asking these questions of. And so literally I'm asking about maybe eight questions here. There's really like 800 questions because there's so many follow-ups for the follow-ups. So that being said, how does your spiritual practice impact your relationships? You'll find that we talk a lot on the peripheral and directly about relationships because I have found that oftentimes people's spiritual practice grounds them and helps them be more open to a variety of people. But some spiritual practices sharpen them block them off and create barriers for close relationship. So I just respect that it can vary from person to person. And I want to pay attention to that as we're talking about building a positionality profile to help me understand how to help a white person, a person with white passing privileges to find out how they can show up for this work. These questions are so helpful. I'm going to move on. This is a part of the most intense early part. I don't know, all of this can be intense, I guess, but this is a really important piece. And this is trauma stories. And we use trauma stories as a dramatic or painful event or major event, it might not be painful, that ingrains into your emotional and uh, spiritual even and nervous system that uh, could dictate your actions or influence how you interact with Maybe cars, if you were in a dramatic car accident. So you might have some a, a story in your trauma body 
that says um, cars are dangerous and going to certain speeds, um, you get really triggered or activated. So we're aware of the trauma story, something that traumatically happens that tells your mind a story. So we're talking about trauma stories here. Top five trauma stories around relationships, romantic and platonic. Huge. Top five trauma stories around relationships, being close to people. Surprise, surprise. Relationships comes up again. When we're trying to examine uh, your positionality, we're oftentimes curious about how your um, personal history is with relationships. I can't tell you how many times in social justice work, in dismantling racism, that relationship, relationship, relationship is a place where we get to work on how we do that. And where does racism, the installation or the container called America impact our ability or inability to have relationship? The next question is kind of a same part of this question. What are your top five trauma stories around your family? Again, surprise, surprise, family's up again. Is that we know that dramatic things that happen either attached to race or outside of racism, dramatic things that happen within your family structure, knowing about that will help us understand what your capacity is and how you can show up for this work on multiple levels. So this question is, again, very critical for a white person to examine themselves in this way to understand how they can show up for social justice work. Positionality. It positions you. What you survived in your family trauma story puts you in a certain mindset. If you're raised poor, raised wealthy, raised middle class, and all those containers, there's definitely some places where trauma can happen. Top five trauma stories around money, value, and resources. Some people look at money, value, and resources as all one thing. And some people have specific definitions for money, specific you know, observations of value, and specific um, definitions for resources. They can define how they want to, but I have found that we are working on someone's uh, racism, how it sits in their body, there's so many places that capitalism and money and resource can show up in the white trauma story in America that can cause a lot of harm, if not tracked well, as we are able to build community, as we're able to integrate into other cultures, that if we don't track how we've been hurt around money and how white people have been hurt around money, you're in for a major surprise. And, and, and I think this is, again, where when we're working with folks that are in the parenting program, there is, there is trauma that is attached to race and capitalism, all woven into how we are parenting or sharing our wisdom or passing wisdom down, our skills down to our children based on how we would hurt around money, value, and resource. And value can even be outside of actually capital. It can be like kinds of people we value. It can get real deep there. There's a lot of nuance and follow-up there. So at this point, um, the last question we'll talk about today, which has like one, two, three, four parts to it, is really a tricky question since that it, it, it can be handled in so many different ways. But we put it here because I think it begins to help us to kind of do some self-evaluation of what we've gathered thus far. I have usually at this point of the positionality profile, I've gathered a lot of data on someone's positionality. And I've also probably talked to them, took breaks in between the questions and have helped them understand how we're putting these puzzles together of who they are. A deep evaluation of who you are. And this question is based on your positionality, how do you emotionally defend yourself from black men or cis black men, black 
cis black women, trans black men, trans black women. There's many other ideas we could put in here, but we'll stop there. And we take the time to start with black men. So depending on your personality, depending on your family trauma, your, your economic status and trauma around that, uh, how you have relationships, we have some stories here that we have gotten to put together. How do you think you would emotionally defend yourself or how have you already in your life emotionally defended yourself from a black man? What do you, how do you do that? Is it the same way? And I say emotionally defend yourself. Some people are like, I don't even know if I emotionally defend myself. I think someone said something really powerful today. They said, I don't even know how to emotionally defend myself. Oh my goodness. I was like a, a, a three hour long conversation right there. I don't even know how to emotionally defend myself. That's important, especially if you get into this work around social justice, reaching into some of the black carnage spaces, trying to bridge the gap of, of, of the many things that are between white people and black people or whatever your, you know, intersectionality you might be crossing here. So when I look at how do you emotionally defend yourself? And some people have a hard time like, do I emotionally defend myself? And what I'll say to that is, you know, as children, you've seen kids when they don't want to listen anymore, they say, stop, stop talking to their parents and look out the window and stop to like shut down. That's the emotional defense. I've seen kids get really angry at their parents and their parents aren't listening. They start screaming. That is an emotional defense. I have seen relationships where um, a, a husband would just, he's, he has such a manipulative narrative already in place that he can just look at his partner a certain way and she'll shut down, show her brothers get all nervous just by his look. She, he can look at her and signal to her that he wants to start, you know, having some, he's, he's, he's disappointed. And I've also seen situations where um, just a sound a wife could make, the husband signal, no, he's, he's busted, he's made a mistake. That's an emotional defense in a lot of ways. So, well, that's manipulation, sure, but it's also a way that they defend themselves, protect themselves. So this question alone, I have worked with a lot of white people that have been in denial about how they control black bodies. I've been, I've been, I've been working with a lot of organizations, nonprofits to companies that are really naive or unaware or just acting unaware of how they control black people that come into their space that interview for their jobs, that get hired into management. And it goes back to the first podcast that I just said in episode one is, what is your ideal black person? That's kind of a backdrop behind. Oftentimes I ask that question first. It's a little bit that's the first podcast on a series. I ask that question first before we then develop. I ask that question and white folks tend to run from that question a lot. Um, but once they settle into it and realize the power of it, we then build a positionality profile. And by the time we get to like question number 20 or 120, depending on how we answer it, we realize that our positionality has so much to do with how and where we can show up effectively in social justice work and how we will probably be critiqued and how we will be perceived as either dangerous or not dangerous. And age and economics, all that can play a role. But your emotional defense is so important. I don't know how many times that I've worked with white women that their emotional defense and their trauma stories kind of come together and is a freeze response when dealing with racism. And in certain situations, that can be very, 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 very dangerous. Um, and in certain situations, it makes sense. But if they don't, aren't aware of their personality and their trauma story and all the things we're talking about here, things will happen in the background and harm will be released in ways that they didn't even know. And so we always want to encourage people to have a comprehensive, powerful positionality profile built before they make a first major step into social justice work, in my opinion. And that's one of the things we'll do. 
in our work is we'll constantly invite people to do either micro, which is kind of what this is right here, the micro, or a small, short positionality profile, or an extended one that might take several months to unpack. But once it's there, it's a living document. You can come back to it again and again and again and, and really flesh out who you are and who you're becoming. Thank you so much for being a part of this positionality profile podcast. And I am excited to work with you, to be in community with you. And if you're in a workshop with me and you're going through this journey of a personality profile build, that I want to encourage you to be patient with yourself, be patient with your community, and be patient with your husband or wife or partner or life partner and children as you start to develop a deep awareness of who you are. This can be ever shifting your reality. And I want to invite you to be patient with yourself. And also know that it's so valuable in my observation of seeing this work happen that as much as I appreciate books and podcasts and films uh, is that there's nothing that has been more effective in my opinion in helping us kind of have a map or orientation of how and when to go than a positionality profile being built. And if you're doing it with a skillful facilitator, it is amazing what can be pulled out, bring to the surface, held with you, noticed with you in this journey. Thank you for being a part of our community. I look forward to knowing you. If you know anything about me, I encourage you, if you hear this podcast and you're going through these questions and you're having some more questions come me hard or have some positive impact or even negative impact of doing this practice, I want to invite you to send me a message. Um, holisticresistance.com is a great place to message me and something you listen to the podcast and how it touched your heart, how it moved through you. And, and maybe the questions are born and maybe we, if I have time and space, maybe we can even get a conversation going or maybe we can get into a podcast, a podcast into a, a, a workshop together and really get to see and notice each other. But I'm really about one-on-one communication. So if I'm available, I would love to have a one-on-one chat with you. Reach for us, reach for me and my team in Holistic Resistance. It's an honor to be with you all. Until next time, peace. welcome you all back. We have Portia here. We're really excited to have a really powerful conversation today about deep mentorship is equals reparenting. And uh, yeah, yeah. Portia, how are you doing today? Just a little check in. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm feeling in a lot of ways. I'm feeling well in my body, um, considering. I've just been dealing with sickness for the past couple of weeks and I uh, have I was able to just like go outside and get some air and walk so just appreciating the more that I can feel my 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 lungs being able to breathe fully so to be able to be here and be present around such an important topic deep mentorship goes with parenting just feels like home to me and yeah, I think this gives us some backstory because Holistic Resistance was born out of a mentorship program. Mm-hmm. And a mentorship program was born out of me mentoring you right. around the age of like 11 or 12, 13, 13 mm-hmm. um, that time frame. So in that context, in a lot of ways, the birthing of Holistic Resistance started with you being mentored by myself. Um, and I think that that's just, it just feels important in the journey of how important and critical and life-saving mentorship can be. Right. Um, one of the 
the curiosity I have for you is what was it what was it like on your end um, being mentored in a nutshell like what was that like to start the journey of getting support in, in, a, in a pretty hard time in your life yeah you know just about any time I think about the de-mentorship program Aaron it's interesting because one of the thoughts that come to me is like I, I had a hard time I had a hard time with like receiving it and actually being trustworthy that this was a program that was going to be for me that was actually going to hold me and see me because I had come from an environment where I oftentimes didn't feel seen um, or heard and I was you know just navigating a lot um, just the way that you know as we talk about the black carnage that was in my space and so it's almost like I felt like the deep mentorship felt like vegetables to me. It was like, I don't want to eat it, but I know it's good for me. Because I had a lot of skepticism. I had a lot of skepticism around like, is this actually going to be here for me? And as I grew in the uh, deep mentorship program, and by growing, I mean opening my heart up and and being open and willing. I, and this is after, you know, you put in time working with me, reaching for me, not giving up on me, even in moments where it was hard for me to trust. Um, it, it's become very clear to me that the de-mentorship program is what saved my life. And I, I am very, very much so clear in that. One of the things I was sitting with for myself, Aaron, it's just like in relation to talking about you choosing to mentor me and be in a mentoring space. Um, I'm curious of like, what made you choose that lifestyle, you know? Because the, to be a mentor is a lifestyle and the way that we chose to be it, you know, because we saw a lot of, we saw a lot of blind spots in, in other mentoring programs where that it was like okay we only meet once a week or we only have a certain time frame but I am clear that when we say for the deep mentorship program that we are reaching for a lifetime and here we are you know going going on almost a decade and some change of, of reaching for each other and I'm no longer really a mentee but more of a, a more of a peer more of we, we mentor each other we support each other but in that I'm curious of what why you chose mm. to be a deep mentor and and what keeps you in that for yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think for me, when I look at the situation that I was in growing up, having dyslexia and struggling in school, uh, support was critical. Mm. Uh, if someone didn't reach out and give uh, encouragement reminder that um, I could be seen or held or thought deeply well of um, there was a very very ready well-oiled machine that was the mass incarceration right, mm. of black men mm. that was waiting for me and it doesn't take much for me to be there and without the hands of Aunt Louise Aunt Juanita my mother, my father, my older brother, my older sister, um, hands that mentored in very different ways, but mentored me. Right. I wouldn't have a, a chance to survive 
the, the, the place called America. And right around the time when I started mentoring you, I made some promises. I made some promises to myself and to my community that if I had any kind of stability, anything to offer, I would hand out my hand to help someone else and not just take the, the uh, blessing of being supported to mentor. And so I, I made that clear to myself and didn't know exactly when I would start, how it would start. Mm. Mm. And it started with you. And so for me, it's it's part of my responsibility. I don't think I live with myself if I um, took all the, the labor of our community. You know, it had some limitations. It wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. But if I took that that labor, that investment of our community and my community and just took it and ran with it, I couldn't I couldn't go to sleep at night. I couldn't live with who I am. I couldn't live with the examples that were given before me. Mm-hmm. And that still feels true to my heart today. So for me, um, I entered in because I had to. Mm-hmm. It was a part of, I could, I, if I wanted to breathe and, and uh, feel fully human, I had to reach my hands out to my peoples. And so that's part of who I am. So I, I, that's what bring me into the work. Um, I, I'm honored by all those that have saw me as a young child, angry young child, um, and did not give up on my heart, did not give up on my potential, and still have it, still invested there. Yeah. Their words and prayers are still in the air around me. Mm. <sighs> Great question, thank you. One of the things I'm I'm curious about because now you're mentoring, right? So, mm-hmm. um, it's a big responsibility. It's a, a, a massive amount of labor, and now we're in COVID, so it gets more complicated. But yeah. I'll be curious of how your journey has been for the last, say, five years of the deep mentorship program that you've been developing for yourself. Yes. What does it feel now to be in the in the in the kind of driver's seat of reaching for hearts and minds of folks that may be deeply hurt? I think it's, I think, I think it's clear to me that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. I, I think I have no, I have no doubts or, or qualms about like, am I supposed to be doing this or am I supposed to be doing something else? I, and I, and I feel like when I slow down my life experience that it became very clear as to why I was mentored, you know, mm. I felt like there were many steps that led up to me saying, I want to, I, as it goes back to what you named around, like seeing the labor, seeing the labor and seeing what was invested in me and, um, you know, understanding that a lot of these young African heritage folks that I'm mentoring and that I'm with. You know, they need someone to keep reminding them that life is worth fighting for, that there, there there's a lot of places in their life in which they could easily um, they could easily be in a space in which they're wondering, hey, when when does my life matter enough that there's a space on this world where I can feel seen, where I can feel connected, where I can feel heard? And I literally try to build that. You know, I try to build this 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 safety space, the space in which I'm able to guide them. And so in a lot of ways, what this experience has been like for me is it's been a it's been a nonlinear learning of what it means to be a mentor. It's one thing to be a mentee, but 
it's a whole nother space when you say, yeah, I'm going to take the responsibility of helping you continue to shape and grow and, 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 and undo the hurts that were given to you. And then looking at those trauma stories and being patient with yourself and loving yourself through that process. So I think that there's definitely been uh, more so than anything is a, and even in the pain, you know, the reality is, is that there's a deep joy. There's a deep, deep joy in my heart to know that these are folks who are saying, hey, Portia, I feel like there's something that you can offer me and that I can be able to gain that's not just for me, but for the next generation. Because we realize that it's clear to me that people are being impacted because I was mentored by you, right? It's clear that you people are being impacted uh, or you're, you're impacting people because you were mentored, because you were supported, right? So it's become really clear to me that there's a domino effect and that one domino is not knocking over just by itself, but someone else is supporting, someone else is, is holding, you know? And so I'm clear that I'm a part of that domino effect and that I'm not the end result, but I'm a part of the of the process. And so I wanna make sure that I do that part. And I think some of the most challenging parts is watching them learn how to swim, right? And saying, hey, I remember when I struggled there and thinking back like, oh, this is, this is what mentorship felt like me, but wait, you're a whole nother human being. You have your own set of stories. You have your own set of trauma stories. Okay, how do I tailor what my how do i tailor my thinking and my customization of supporting you in the ways that i feel like would be most beneficial and effective to you and and really when it's all said and done i, I feel like there's been a mixture of that mm. there's been challenge there's been pain there's been joy but most importantly is there's a level of resiliency that that keeps us continuing to reach for each other's hearts and minds and to me that is the root of what i learned through working with you honestly aaron is that it's really about what is it like to just keep trying? Mm-hmm. Even if you're stumbling, even if it's not always exactly the way it should be, there's a love that is that is that is unwavering that will be there. And to know that is one of the biggest things that I that I gained that I try to give to them. It's like, it's okay. That's that's I have a I have a you know a rap I was working on and, and a phrase came up that was like, it's it's okay. It's the way that we grow, it's the way that we mold, right? And I heard that phrase and I was just like, yeah, it's okay to make mistakes. It's the way that we grow, it's the way that we mold. And I think a lot of these young folks, they don't get a lot of chances. And so there's that extra tension around making mistakes. Yeah. It's huge. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, speaking of this conversation of what it means to like, be with these young folks and give them space to grow and all these things some would say sounds like you're kind of parenting <laughs> you know <laughs> sounds like you're kind of in the space of like supporting and and parenting or reparenting these folks and I'm curious if you would speak a little bit about that because one thing that's true to me and my story is that I saw a lot of places that I had to be retaught I had to learn how to rethink and, and, and reassess the way I looked at the world and how I looked at myself and all of these things. And a lot of that was done through questions. I know it was one of your biggest conversations with me, but I'm curious if you would speak a little bit more to what, not just the deep mentorship as a whole, but specifically the element of reparenting, revisioning uh, with young 
African heritage folks and, and even starting with myself of what that experience has been like for you? Yeah, I think reparenting was born when I, I remember sitting down with a mother, a family actually, a mother and a father, and I was taking in one of their children into my mentorship program. They had five children total. And I saw very clearly that even though they had five children and loved them so deeply, that they were ill-equipped for what it took to actually help their children survive. And this has nothing to do with their intelligence or their desire. They had all the heart, but it was just the perfect storm of the trauma story that the children were holding perfectly lined up with the soft spots or the hurt spots for their parents. And so it was a constant riff happening to the point that the trauma was so deep, they couldn't live in the same room with each other. They couldn't be in the same house hardly together. They were just, and this, this child was getting close to adulthood um, and they were in a large city like Los Angeles. So in that, in that container, I, I realized that if we didn't do something if this didn't work, there was no there's no backup here. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I do with reparenting or deep mentorship is I ask myself, can I see them? Mm-hmm. Can I see them? Mm-hmm. And I ask myself the question not just once, but like a hundred times throughout the, the early process. And, and it continues on, but it's loud. That question is really loud the first, but can I see them? And I say that not because reparenting is hard because we're not... You know, we're not dealing with uh, having therapists and doctors and mm. medication and mm. we got Jesus mm. and a shelter, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I say that not kiddingly, like it's not just that we're against therapists or we're against doctors, it's that the trauma story this young black folks sitting with is I don't trust the doctor, yep. I don't trust the therapist. And, and I'm going to tell you something, finding a therapist where we live that can actually even hold black stories at all. It's Look. so hard. It's just not there. It's just not available. Yeah. And I'm not even talking about the other trauma that black folks carry yeah. around there. So we don't have therapy. Often and and by if time, you find that therapist, now you got to go help your mentee be okay with exactly. moving towards exactly. that. Exactly. We have to work with them on our end so they actually feel safe enough and have exactly. capacity to go in there exactly. and be with the therapist and actually really benefit from that experience. So that usually comes on us first. Right. So we're not anti having a professional on site, but that's not available. Right. Right. Trauma story makes that available. That's a, a white oppressive systems made it very clear that they're not trying to get mental health support for, for black children that mm. we're getting. So I knew that as a reparenter, my goal was to be a therapist. My goal was to be uh, a father. Mm. My goal was to be a mother. Mm. My goal was to be a friend at times. Mm. My goal was to be um, a disciplinary to help them get straighten things up and, and, and mm. call them into support. My goal was to reconnect them to the earth mm. and also to try and see them while I'm doing all of that. Right. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because I think I think everything you said, folks are like, yeah, therapist, a parent, a, a mother, a father, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you said connect to the earth. Can you mm. speak a little bit more about that? I think that it, w- it would be really well, powerful well, to go well, into that. Well, we find that when I look at can I see you, one of my things I've seen to them is where are you hurting? Mm. Where are you hurting the oftentimes the, the the hurt so oftentimes when I get young folks they say, This kid's a liar. <laughs> this is this is a liar, this is a thief, or this kid's a fighter, he's a fighter. You know, so they, they literally don't even call him by their name. They just kinda name him by the last offense mm. that they did. The, the adult that usually hand them off is 
you're that thing you did. You're a murderer, whatever that is. You're a thief, you're a rapist. And we define these horrific things by, you're not even a person anymore. You were never an infant. You were never a human. You are now a murderer. And I understand that murder is a horrible thing, but none of that, I've never met a murderer that wasn't a baby first, mm. right? So for me, it, it, there's a there's a level of connectedness yeah. to the earth that really is about connecting them back to themselves. Right. And I oftentimes grab a clay ball at some point right. in a mentorship program. And I say, when you die, you'll turn into your cell phone. You turn to this, <laughs> right? Now, I don't try to mock the cell phone if someone was amazing, but there's a way in which sometimes for someone to ground themselves, to try and even start to self-heal, to self-soothe in a really real way, it's good to remember where you are. Not like, oh, I'm in America. That's useful to know at some point. Yeah. But where are you? You're on the earth. Like, let's go out and touch it. Yeah. Let's go be with it. Yeah. And I think that came to me, living in the earth though, because I saw that it was no longer the separate thing. That the earth was the thing that nourished us, so the food and the, the everything that we, the wood that we use to build our houses came and comes from the yes. earth. But right. when you're in a large city, Los Angeles, you're somewhere in a large city, even a large city, you can go a long time and never touch it. Right. Not not knowingly. It's a right. cement, it's plastic, it's a car, more cement, more right. plastic, more. It's all very much been touched by man. Right. And so that has a, a wearing impact on your nervous system. And so when we bring mentees into our mentorship program, just ones that are living with us, yep. is we even the ones that aren't, but the ones that are definitely with us, we want to take them outside and earth build. Right. We'll go out and see some Muscovy ducks or some some chickens and some eggs and yep. you raise a, a baby chick from a baby chick all to adulthood and then you, get, you butcher it and, and the, the, the cycle of life and death and understand you don't just go to the store and like i some nuggets to know that those nuggets <laughs> lived inside of a human mm -hmm. uh, human being lived inside of a chicken mm -hmm. at some point yeah and was harvested by a human being and that was labored over so when you do that thing yourself you're like i'm, I'm not gonna throw this food away yeah. you know so this this is all part of being grounded to the earth so this yeah. is kind of regrounding help them settle into yeah being a human being. And I could, I could speak a little bit to that experience too. And that's why I really appreciate you slowing that piece down because I can think back to when um, when you very first were building your earth home and I was really intrigued by it. And I was just like, wow, like, what is this? And, and I remember, you know, the more I got into the space, the more I started to realize like, wow, this is like empowering. It's not, and I, and I thought about this, I was like, it's not just a touch piece, but it's also like a mentality piece that when you have, you know, when you're, when you're a young black person and coming from poverty and not having a lot, not knowing what, what, what vision looks like, what it looks like to build your own, what it looks to create, to, to own, right? And there's this place in which you can really just, there's a, I remember being, you know, clear that I wanted to create my own shelter after, after seeing the earth dome. And I never, I never thought about, I never thought about that previously. And obviously like that's a longer story, but one of the significant pieces I'm thinking about is I remember touching the earth and there was a way that I felt also embodied mm. in ways that I never felt before. And I remember coming to you and be like, Aaron, I'm, I'm like, I'm experiencing something. Like I'm experiencing tears. I'm experiencing feelings of, in ways that I don't, I don't feel when I'm watching TV. In ways that I don't feel when I'm when I'm when I'm playing a video game or 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 something that doesn't require me to slow down and notice the nature of my feet and above my head, you know. And 
that that to me just feels very nourishing and I think to our chronically undertouched support group and like how we are working with these young black men to to actually I remember just them starting out and, and understanding what it meant to be close to each other mm. you know just like yeah we as black men we can we can yeah. hold each other's hands and we can look each other in the eyes and we can fill each other's heart and if you have some tears that is welcomed as well and guess what you're a whole man mm. you're you're still a whole man right and i and i could see the places in which they're moving through that and if and, and then you get a little clay ball and you have that next to them right and they're like wow like this feels hard this feels uncomfortable this but at the same time this is good for me right so i think there's so much there that i just really really appreciate and thinking about oh it's huge yeah i think I think one of the things I know we're gonna, we're gonna stop the podcast here soon, but I just want to say that you're right. I think when it comes to taking on the touching of the earth and and relearning how to touch each other yeah. in healthy platonic ways yeah. is such a interruption of so many trauma stories that come into come to our our, our communities. And I think for me, when we track someone that is suffering from mental illness i can guarantee you they're crying under touch on some level they're mm. somewhere on the spectrum mm. and i can almost guarantee you they don't have enough time with therapy as well yeah and so we start learning that yes therapy is good yes sometimes yeah. you need medication yes these are things important but i'm shocked every time how we can get ahead of the trauma yeah by allowing young folks to be with each other yeah to get their touch needs met in a very skillful and thoughtful and platonic way and then make a part of their touch plan, which is another podcast, mm-hmm. part of their t- touch plan mm-hmm. is the earth. Exactly. It's a part of it. The the earth is like, in, in a lot of ways from what I've seen and I've witnessed, it's like the earth is the gateway to an embodied experience for yes. a lot of these folks. Yes. It's like, wow, this is, so I can, I can, I can, I can feel this on my skin. I can notice this. I remember the first time we just had them put clay on mm-hmm. their hands mm-hmm. and just feel it. Yeah. And the ways that they're like, kind of feels you know like they're yeah, just yeah. they were just like yeah. in it and so there's so much there that i feel is just really powerful about that so i'm really excited about deepening more into that with you thank you thank you all for listening um to our uh, podcast around deep mentorship and reparenting such an important part of holistic resistance it's kind of a, a unsung part it's not something we we, we talk too much about yeah. but we're talking more about it now because it's to me more important now than ever for us to have more reparenters in the world exactly. um, more people holding up community and building it for these marathon journeys because mentorship is a lifelong program we don't have people join our program and they go oh you're you're 25 and they graduate people they graduate when they are able to stand on their own two feet they don't so there's no graduation but there's a part of our mm-hmm. lifelong commitment this mm-hmm. is like parenting we don't yeah. ever um, as long as we're living in our half of our right minds, we, we reach for these young folks. And exactly. lest they say, I would like to leave your program, and then they can leave it at any point. But as long as they're desiring help and we can safely give it, we do that. And that's the journey that we're on. This is not a, oh, you're 18 now. And usually 18 is when they most likely get locked up. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that our program mm-hmm. is through 18 by a long shot. So thank you, Forrest, for being here with us. Thank you for yeah. being that first mentee for myself. Yeah. And being a gateway for so many to come after you. Yeah. Oh, it's such an honor, Aaron. It's such an honor to be able to to be on this uh, podcast and and to be able to do do this work. Uh, I think it's quite clear to me that deep mentorship program, and I say this often, is one of the most undervalued um, work 
Um, and I, I just think it's so powerful to think about the ways that reparenting is in the is at the roots of that. Yeah. And I just feel really, really excited about um, all the listeners and and all you all who are listening to this podcast. Just um, yeah, deep gratitude for taking the time to be with us today. And and Aaron, just you know, love as usual because the truth is, deep mentorship saved my life, and I I will always always grateful because of that. Mm, thank you, Portia. I will also say to all the parents out there and uh, folks that may be taking our parenting program either now or in the future that this is something we're going to go in deep in depth about, about what we had to navigate, how we've navigated and how we've gotten ahead of yeah. the trauma and how we want to collaborate yeah. with your hearts and minds as you are taking on one of the most important jobs on the planet and that is caring for other human beings to grow them into the world. Uh, to survive a very complex world. If you're parenting now in 2020 in, in a very uh, intense pandemic and shelter in place, and mm-hmm. education to food supplies are all being questioned. Yeah. Um, my heart is with you. Absolutely. We are here with you. And we were looking forward to building a network of support so you don't do this alone. Much love. We'll talk soon. Much love. <laughs>